taken away one of the psalms i'll introduce psalm 110 in um in the body of the sermon we're going to look at psalm 2 tonight let me read psalm 2 and then we'll begin our series hear god's holy word Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He'll speak to them in his anger, terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, sow discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. and Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he will not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you make us alive by the proclamation of your word. You've given us faith to love you because of your love of us. I ask that you would have mercy upon me, Holy Spirit, as I desire to preach this faithfully according to your mind, that the people would hear your word and we would be shaped into your blessed image. Glorify your name in all the earth. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think I've given a couple of announcements regarding what we're doing tonight. We finished up the book of Ezekiel last week. I think we did actually get 48 sermons, though I didn't track exactly with all 48 chapters. We did get 48 sermons out of Ezekiel, so we were at it for a year. And ordinarily what I do after the end of a lengthy book series is I take a a break and do some topicals. And I'm kind of going to do a little twist And then we'll get into a book series, uh, again, Old Testament in the evening. Not quite sure what I'll preach next by way of Old Testament books. But what we're going to do, or at least my intention, is we're in the Psalms, but there's a method to my madness. I want to look at the Messianic Psalms. And I think there are 25 Psalms that are expressly Messianic that we can go to a New Testament counterpart that clearly says this is Christ, quoting the Psalms. I think there are at least 25, something like that. There may be more that allude to, obviously there are 150 psalms, but they, they may allude to Christ. But I'm looking at the specifically Messianic psalms. And so my purpose in this preaching through the Messianic psalms is I desire to progress logically and thematically. I'm not going to follow chronologically. So I won't, we obviously won't be Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3. We're gonna, we're, there's a, there, there will be a logical order. In, in the body of my sermon, we'll see that the proclamation of Christ is the mediator, the redeemer, the anointed, all of these things. And so today we're going to look at the, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's fully God, the sonship of Jesus, that he is the second person of the divine Godhead. And then in further sermons, we'll look at the humanity of Christ. We'll look at the, um, the, uh, the prophet, Christ is prophet, Christ is priest, Christ is king, all of those things. And obviously Psalm 110 would have both Christ as king and prophet. And we'll look at that. So th- that's the desire. So hopefully my plan will become more evident as 
we go along, but at least that's the general track in which I, I want to um, look at. So a lot of what we're, we'll see in Psalm 2, I want to bypass for now the enmity of the unbeliever against the Lord and against Christ, as specifically as Messiah. I'll, I'll touch on it a little bit, but we'll look at the hatred of Jesus or the warfare against Jesus in, in, in further sermons. Specifically, I want to look at Christ as... Um, as the anointed, and then as the Son of God, as the eternal Son of God, or as, as we just said, um, the only begotten. I know some of the modern versions, I'm not going to name them, will take the only begotten Son of God, and they'll make it the only Son of God. I don't like that translation. I'm not a Greek scholar by any means. It's monogenes. It's a compound word. It means only begotten. I, but but we'll be, we'll be looking at that. What I want to do then is, since this is a thematic sermon and we're looking at the revelation of Jesus, I want to take a step back and begin very, very basically as we plow our way through the Psalms. This is one aspect of God's revelation. God has, I would say, two forms or two venues by which he reveals himself to man. And it's a willing revelation of himself to man, a condescension. God is so infinitely transcendent above man that if he determined not to reveal himself to man, we would never know God. So when we consider God's revelation of himself in these two venues, it, it, it ought to make human beings swoon. The fact that the creator of the heavens and the earth condescends, desires, wants to be known by men and to be worshipped and adored by men. The first realm in which God makes himself known to man is natural revelation. This is a Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, or a Psalm 139, when David considers um, his conception. I was fearfully and wonderfully made. Natural revelation, again, is the basis that Paul in Romans chapter 1, 18 to the end of the chapter, he says that, that God makes himself known in creation, that even the unbeliever, even the person bowing down to a stick and a stone, when he looks at creation, there's enough in creation to teach man as image bearer, even fallen image bearer, that God is God and man is not, that God is the creator and man is not. So this is one venue in which God reveals himself, that God is, that God is all-powerful, uh, that God is all wise and God is all good. That's the basis of the Apostle Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 14. He says, God didn't leave himself without a witness. He's shown you through good crops and seasons and all of these things that he exists and that your stick and stone is not a God, but you pervert the truth and you worship the stick and the stone, the creature rather than the creator. So natural revelation is enough to hold men, all men culpable. So when people say, what about the poor person in the cave and somewhere? What about that person? Well, natural revelation speaks to that person. It leaves all men without excuse before a holy God. It leaves them all culpable or answerable to a holy God, that they should worship him. It's not sufficient to lead a man to a saving knowledge of God in Christ. Um, I think there are some Catholic theologians that codified that. I forget the fellow that codified it. It'll come to me probably 2 o'clock in the morning. There are some professing Christians that maintain if you look at natural revelation, you can know God uh, savingly. We don't believe that as, as Protestants. We believe that you can know certain things about God, but you can't know God savingly in natural revelation because natural revelation does not teach to, to man what? Christ. 
doesn't teach the cross. And so for that revelation, we need to go from seeing God as creator and us men as creatures. We need a, a revelation where God shows himself as a merciful savior to needy sinners. And for that revelation, we have redemptive revelation or salvific revelation. And, and, and after the close of canon, it's the Bible. So the Bible is that other form of revelation that God condescends to reveal himself to man, that we would know him. And in, in natural revelation, if God says, I'm a creator to creatures, in special or redemptive revelation, it's God specifically that he means to save sinners and that we are his adopted sons and adopted daughters, and it's specifically in Christ Jesus. And those are the two forms of revelation. And obviously, we're looking at in the book of Psalms, that Psalms is in that special revelation category. So the Bible fundamentally, from Genesis chapter 3.15 to the book of Revelation, what is the last chapter, 22? Is fundamentally about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we say messianic Psalms, again, it's something specific about Jesus that we can say, there's his kingship, there's his saviorhood, there's his mediatorial office, something like that. You can almost take the entire Bible and dip it into somehow or another it's related to the, the first or the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus says in Luke chapter 22 with the guys on the road to Emmaus and he, they're providentially kept from seeing who he is. And he said, why are you so dejected? They said, we thought Jesus was the Christ. And then he opened up the entire Bible to them and he said, the whole thing is about me. John chapter 5, Jesus again says to the people, he says, the whole Bible, Moses wrote about me. So all of scripture is about Christ. And so certainly uh, the Psalms, in some way or another, all are about the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, with that said, the entire content of the Bible is not expressly the gospel. So all, all, every word of the scripture is not John 3.16. The Ten Commandments are not John 3.16. The, 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 the moral law is not John 3.16. The moral law will actually act as a tutor to drive us to John 3.16, but it's not John 3.16. There are other aspects of redemptive revelation. I want to look at, um, again, we're setting the stage for walking through the Psalms. I want to look at, so we've had natural revelation, we've had special or redemptive revelation revealing Jesus to us, and then we could take redemptive revelation, kind of split it in half, and we'll we'll say that... Um, the content of the Bible, classic with Luther, uh, law gospel. So the, the Bible reveals to us, and we can subdivide it variously, but let's just use Luther's favorite subdivision, law gospel. The Bible reveals God's, and, and for our purposes tonight, moral law. And I understand the ceremonial or judicial, but we'll, use, we'll just refer to the moral law. Summarized in the Ten Commandments, further summarized when Jesus says, love God and love man, moral law. Let's just talk about that uh, for just a bit. Matthew Henry, if I've said this before, if all of a sudden, I don't know, if a tornado was going to hit my library, I would grab my Bible, my, 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 my confession of faith, and if I could grab my um, Matthew Henry, I'd grab my Matthew Henry. He, if, you, if, if you only have him as a commentator, you can't do too badly. Um, I think he dies by the, at the conclusion of the book of Acts, and it's other men who take his notes and their notes and finish from Acts onward. So if you have Matthew Henry's commentary, the book of Revelation, is uh, the, the, the minister is technically 
in William Henry uh, is William Tong, T-O-N-G. It's an interesting name, which is why I remember. But Matthew Henry says this as regards to law gospel. And he begins his commentary in the Psalms with Psalm 1. And he has an interesting insight on Psalm 1. He says, Psalm 1 is moral. Psalm 1 is moral, expresses the moral law. And by that, what he means is, Psalm 1 principally sets forth to us as human beings what duty God requires of us. It's not law, it's moral. It's not gospel, it's, it's law. Psalm 1 sets before us what duty God re- requires of us. And, and I'm just going to read it in just a bit, that God in Psalm 1 sets forth both the negative duty and the positive duty. Um, implied in that is the sin of commission and the sin of omission. What is the sin of commission? God says, um, don't do thus and so. He forbids something, and we do it. Uh, that's the sin of commission. And the sin of omission is refraining from doing something which God says do. Love me, love uh, your fellow man, and we don't. That's omission. And this is how Psalm 1 puts it. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates in it day and night. That's the negative and the positive. And Matthew Henry is exactly right. It sets forth uh, the moral duty. It sets forth the law. And then when he comes to Psalm 2, he says if Psalm 1 is moral, Psalm 2 is evangelical. Psalm 2 is evangelical. Psalm 1, God says, this is the duty I require of you. Psalm 2 begins to set forth the evangel. This is what he requires us to believe about him, expressly about Christ that he is the Son of God, that he is the Holy King, that he rules on uh, the Holy Mountain, that he is the one that puts down all of his enemies, that he is the one that emancipates or saves his people. So Psalm 2 is evangelical. It's full of gospel uh, gold. And this is what we are required to believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that said, um, again, to quote Luther, Luther maintained that a right understanding of law gospel was key to the essence of true religion. And if you confuse or confound the two, uh, essentially you lose the gospel. And I'm going to say something, this is going to seem silly. Um, The law is not the gospel, and the gospel is not the law. And we here in this church understand that this is true. There's a very famous guy. He writes lots of books. He's a multimillionaire. He has a lot bigger church than I am. He says the law is the gospel. Um, there's another man in my um, library, a very learned guy, um, much sharper than I am. He says, for example, things like the Beatitudes, that, that's the gospel. The Beatitudes is, is not the gospel. The Beatitudes is the life of a person that has received the gospel. The, law, the moral law of God is not the gospel. That's straight up Pelagianism. That's do this. You're saying by this you can keep a covenant of works and live. That's not even the church of my youth. The church of my youth was, was at least semi a Pelagian and not full-blown Pelagian. So the law is not the gospel, and uh, the gospel is um, is not the law. And so what the law does, it merely commands. There's no proviso in the law that will rectify our law-breaking. And the only response for our law-breaking is to believe in Christ's law-keeping, and that's the gospel. So I, I want to read something. Most of us have read... Um, I hope everybody in this room has read um, 
Pilgrim's Progress. I think it's true that outside the Bible, it's supposedly the most well-read Christian book. And John Bunyan had a right understanding of some one, moral, some two, evangelical, law, gospel. And this is what John Bunyan said. Uh, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You, you, You see that? You see the distinction? So when we are coming to the Psalms, we need to know what we're looking at. Are we looking at a psalm that's expressly moral? Uh, do this, duty passage, like the book of James, which I'll talk about in just a bit? Or are we looking at an evangelical passage, believe in Christ and live? Now, when we talk about the law and the gospel, it's not as if that they contradict one another. If we look at a right understanding, and this is all to set up why we have a coming Christ, when we look at the proclamation of the law of God, the moral law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments, the moral law acts as a tutor to show us our need of Jesus Christ in the gospel. If you take away law preaching, what need is there of gospel preaching? It is always a question when men come to be examined, to be a minister in the OPC, they ask you, will you preach the law? Will you preach the law of God? And I, I sat in a very large church in this town and the minister took the pulpit and he said I'm telling everybody in this room God has no wrath that's how he opened his sermon I said well I wanted to say I wanted to stand up and say go home take the cross off the wall what is the cross for my God my God why hast thou forsaken if there's no wrath if there's no broken law why Christ why gospel so The law of God is not antithetical to the gospel of God. It shows us our need of the gospel of God. It acts as a tutor. And you know this. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 3. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith alone. But now faith has come. We're no longer under a tutor, for you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I mentioned Luther. Again, we're just laying the the groundwork for looking at Christ in the Psalms, the evangel, the good news. We're trying to understand that law-gospel distinction. Martin Luther has these very true and insightful statements. He says this, The law reveals the disease. The gospel gives the remedy. That's what we just read in Galatians 3. He goes on to say this. This is the church of my youth. To mix law and gospel not only clouds the knowledge of grace, it cuts out Christ altogether. This This is why we can't add one of our good works meritoriously so to the good work of Jesus Christ the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans is it chapter 10 or chapter 11 if we add one work to grace what happens to grace we destroy it that's what happens when you mix law and gospel it's the Galatian heresy you say I, believe, I, I begin by spirit rod faith but I keep myself in Jesus by being faithful uh, to the law of God you'll lose Christ that's what it means to fall from grace that's uh, Galatians chapter 5 
the, the true gospel, Luther says, has it that we are justified by faith alone, without the deeds of the law. Those who lapse from the gospel to the law are no better off than those who lapse from grace to idolatry. And again, not only does the law act as a tutor to show us our need of the evangel, because if you look at Psalm 1, who are the righteous, who are these people that will stand? We're all conceived in sin, and that, that drives us to this Son of God, this Holy King. So it shows us our, our, our sinfulness. It shows us the remedy in Jesus Christ. But, but the law of God, in obeying the law of God, also sets forth the evidences that we have received the Lord Jesus Christ uh, truly. The way I know the great debate between the Church of my youth, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Reformed Church is how do we understand Paul on justification and how do we understand James on justification? Uh, before God, all men are justified before God by faith in Christ alone, before God. And our faith is justified before men and before ourselves by good works. That's the reconciliation between Paul and James. And I'm giving you the Protestant reconciliation. If I was a Roman Catholic, I would give you the Roman Catholic reconciliation. But the way that we understand Paul and James is uh, Paul is preaching the gospel and and James is is preaching essentially law. Sometimes you hear this, which I don't think is true. Sometimes people say, well, Luther said he wanted to rip James out of the Bible. I don't actually think that's true. He did refer to the book of James as an epistle of straw. That is true. But it was in comparison to the, the Pauline epistles, which he considered to be gospel gold. And so as he's looking at the gospel, which is gold, when he compares it to the law, he thought the law was less than. That's all that that's referring to. He's he's not deriding it. And actually, he's correct in that. Paul is preaching the gospel, and James is preaching the law. But the fruit, the evidences that our faith is true, is our obedience to the law. And so the the proof that we have received, Psalm 2, Christ, is Psalm 1, when we walk in the ways of the Lord. Now, that's setting the stage. So looking at this specific psalm, I, as I say, I don't want to look particularly at the enemies of God, but I do find it interesting when people say, oh, you know, people are basically good. Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh to save basically good people. This is why it has to be sovereign salvation. People are not really looking for God unless God looks for them. They want to look for God as much as a guilty criminal wants a just judge. Psalm 2 is a picture, if we see the nations raging, of unregenerate natural man, graceless man. They, they hate God. They hate Christ. And But for the love of God in Christ, we would, we would too. I want to look at just the identity of Christ. We're told that Jesus Christ is called the anointed. And I know less Hebrew than I know Greek. I studied three years Greek, two years Hebrew. I know the Hebrew word here is the same Hebrew word we get Messiah from. And so the word Messiah means anointed in Hebrew, and the word Christ in Greek is anointed. So they're the same. And sometimes people say they mean different things. They don't mean different things. Messiah is the anointed one in Hebrew, and Christ is the anointed one in Greek. And the Old Testament is primarily, almost completely, originally inspired in the Hebrew language. And just as an aside, I think it's in... um, John Owen's biblical theology, he thinks in the eternal estate, when we're all, he thinks we're going to be all speaking one language, it will be the reversal of Babel, like Pentecost. He thinks we'll all be speaking Hebrew. So uh, I remember saying oy vey when I read that in the book, but, but 
the Bible is almost Hebrew. The Old Testament is almost completely in Hebrew with a smattering of Aramaic. Aramaic. Genesis 31, 47 Aramaic, Jeremiah 10, 11 Aramaic, and a couple of sections in Ezra, chapter 4, chapter 7, and in chapter uh, Daniel chapter 2 to 7, there are some sections originally that were in the Aramaic. Now the Greek, the New Testament, uh, the autographs, the original, they were inspired, as I say, in the Greek. So we'll look at Christ as anointed, what it means a little bit as we go along. I want to see, we're, we're just going to lay the foundation. When you look at who this Messiah is, the Savior of sinners is, the first thing I want us to consider when it says, have you considered my king, my son, my anointed one, that, that kind of a language, God is referring to the Messiah as a person. And I know you're going to think, well, that's, that's pretty simple. You don't need to go to seminary for that. I, I, I agree with that. But there are people even people that call themselves Christians, that deny that Jesus Christ, Christ, is a real person. They speak of Christ as an idea, as an ideal, or as a force. Uh, pantheists speak this way. And so you can hyphenate pantheists would be a modern-day uh, New Ager. Um, the God Spirit in me speaks to the God Spirit in you. That's what actually... Should I, I won't use the, the Hindi word. So my wife, her native tongue is Hindi. And there's a greeting in Hindi. I'm not going to tell you. It begins with N. It says, the God in me greets the God in you. So my wife won't actually use that greeting because she knows what it is. Some well-meaning American will say, and they say the greeting. And they'll use that term because they just think they're being nice. It's like saying hi, but it's not like saying hi. It's religious. The God in me meets the God in you. And you know the term, the N term. And so it's a pantheistic way. So they'll speak of the Christ spirit in me, the Christ spirit in you. And we're, we, we want to be Bible Christians. Does the Bible speak of the Christ as this nebulous force, as this mystical spirit? Or does the Bible speak of Christ as a distinct person? Also, not all Jews, I, I say Jews, Let's say believing Jews are Christians, but non-believing Jews. And they're like Christians. You can subdivide them all over the place. Liberal Jews, Reformed Jews, Orthodox Jews. In the land of my birth, I grew up in a, uh, in a town, Needham, next to a town, Newton, uh, Brookline. Major duty center for the Hasidic Jews. I forget, they, there's another word for them. Um, and, and they subdivide all over the place. There are some Jewish, un, unbelieving Jewish folks, people that reject Jesus Christ, that also don't speak of Messiah as a person, but as a messianic age in which there'll be renovated people living in this uh, renovated place. Uh, and, and people that believe this kind of Christ spirit, not person, oftentimes, typically, when they speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they don't mean bodily resurrection of a physical Jesus Christ. They mean metaphorical that the resurrection of Jesus is a spiritual metaphor. We're going to be resurrected like a butterfly or something like that. And you say, well, who would believe that? There are a lot of people that believe that. They come here and say, oh, no. You, you mean a literal savior, a literal a, a sacrifice, a person that we are to believe in. Yes, I know we're going super basic. But when we walk away from the Psalms, we want to know who is this Christ He's not a nebulous force. It's not the, the Christ in me and the Christ in you and the Christ force. Jesus didn't rise from the dead metaphorically. It wasn't, it wasn't an idea 
that went to the cross to pay for our sins. It was a person. And when you look at this passage, again, just trying to look at it thematically, if you were to look, if you were to look philosophically, what are the attributes attributed to, to personhood? You have moral agency, that Christ is a moral agent. He, he, he has moral agency, he has, he has intelligence, he has self-awareness. All of these things are attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ. So our Messiah is a real person. Christ has personhood. And we're going to talk about that he, he is a divine person, and he is fully God and fully man, but he is a, he is a, a human, and he is a, he is a personal being is the overarching truth that I'm going to get at. And so when we look at this Messiah, we're not being called to follow an idea or an ideal. In, and I want to be careful with that. It's not, that, it's not Jesus as teacher that saves us. And again, my wife had difficulty with this. When I became a Christian before she did. And, I, and she read John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And coming from a Hindu background, she thought, it can't be him. It's not the person, Jesus. It has to be teachings. Like you're following a Gandhi. You're following a guru. It's teachings. It's an idea. It's not, he doesn't mean a person. We're, he, the person is not dying for us. We're not saved in him. But what does Jesus say? I am. And he uses that, that Greek that counterpart of the Old Testament, Jehovah, Yahweh, he goes, go a me. I am that I am. It's me. It's the person of Jesus. So when we're, we're, when we're looking at the evangel, the evangel is not what we do. That's moral. The evangel is what he does. And it's, it's a person that's the Savior. And we're being taught that principally. And the next thing I want us to look at is the divinity or the deity of Jesus Christ. And there are lots of people that say, well, I believe in Jesus. The next question should be, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? And there are lots of people that say, Jesus is a swell fellow. And remember Jesus in John chapter, in Matthew chapter 16, excuse me, is debriefing his guys. He send, sends them out preaching, and they're preaching Jesus. Is the, is the God-man. He's the Emmanuel. And this is kind of encouragement for the preacher. And so they're preaching the coming of, of the God-man, Christ, the Son of God, what we're looking at that Jesus is fully God, fully man. And they're out there preaching it. And he says, who do people say that I am after you're preaching? In other words, what do they think about me after you preach me to them? And this is actually an encouragement to me. Because what happens? Oh, some people say that we are teaching you that you're just a swell guy and a holy prophet. <laughs> they're not. They completely get it wrong. And they, oh, you're the Elijah, you're, you're, you're the power, miracle-working man, you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, you're just a swell guy, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. So for the person that says, I believe in Jesus, I think he's a swell guy, you're an evangelistic prospect. You're not a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. So we're looking at the personhood of Jesus, but the divine personhood of Jesus. All views of Christ, all beliefs of Christ are not saving. I asked a PCA minister many years ago, can I believe in a false gospel of false Christ and still go to heaven? In other words, can I just say Jesus, Christ of any kind, and can I go to heaven? The church of my youth says Christ. The Mormons say Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses say Christ. Christ. 
So just saying Christ gets us into heaven? What do we believe about Christ? Who do you say that I am? He is a, he is a person, but he is God. This is why I wanted to read John uh, Psalm 110. And you have, And my Lord said to my what? And Jehovah said to my Adonai. This is an aspect of the deity of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 1, Luther's, again, I have Luther on the brain. Luther said this protects us against Arianism and Sabellianism or modalism. It protects us against saying that Jesus is a creature. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. It's against Arianism. But it also shows us that it's against modalism. It's not the Father morphing morphing into the Son and the Son morphing into the Spirit. That the divine Godhead is one God with three divine persons is a mystery. When you come here, I'm going to try to help us understand that today I've begotten you, which is a little perplexing, but the, the rest of it is not perplexing. You are my son. Worship the son. God the Father never calls any human being to worship a creature. He doesn't command that which he forbids. That would be against the nature of God. So he is affirming the eternality, the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, when we say here, God says, my son. The Lord says of the Messiah, he is my son. There are people. It's, it's, it's helpful to interact with unbelievers. We want to evangelize them. And you can't evangelize unbelievers unless you talk to unbelievers. But here's the thing. Not all unbelievers are dumb as a brick. There are unbelievers that have read the Bible. And there are unbelievers that are going to, th- they're going to answer you back. And they're going to say, well, it says son of God. But you know. The Bible also calls angels sons of God. The Bible calls Adam, the first Adam, the son of God. The Bible calls believers sons of God. Therefore, when God says about the Messiah that he's the son of God, it's just like that. Like he's an angel, like we're called sons of God. Well, I understand the rejoinder, but there is an answer to that. Uh, the angels are called sons of God by virtue of their creation. They're like servants of Uh, of uh, the Lord God and you and I are not sons and daughters of God the way that Jesus is a son of God Jesus is a son of God eternally essentially that's the that monogenes the only begotten you and I are sons and daughters of God how we were taken from one spiritual family and we were translated into another spiritual family and we are sons of God by virtue of adoption it's a radically different thing So when people object, there is an answer to it, and we'll look at that in just a bit. I don't want to go too, too long, but we'll deal with this. I don't think that today I have begotten you that there was a time in which Christ was not the only begotten son. I mentioned Arius, the third third century. He said there was a time that Christ was not. And there was a theory that, again, from Hebrews chapter 5, because it quotes... Acts 13 and Hebrews chapter 5 quote that psalm, Today I've begotten you. And they don't refer to the incarnation of Christ. It refers to the resurrection of Christ. And so the Arians held to this theory called the adoption theory, that Jesus was adopted the way that we're adopted. That is not right. That's not right. Matthew Henry has a good section on this. He says, let's not get hung up on the today I have begotten you. He maintains that this begetting is a proclamation that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the Savior. The Bible talks about, um, we use a principle of Scripture, 
interpret scripture. Clearer passages help us understand less clear related passages. I think the fancy phrase is the analogy of faith. I'm going to read a couple for us on Jesus as that eternal son of God that we are to worship and to put our trust in. You know, um, the two places in the book of Matthew where a voice comes down out of heaven and owns Christ specifically. I'm thinking of what two events in, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter um, 17. The baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove, lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's the baptism. There was a, the, uh, an anti-Trinitarian uh, heretic, and I forget who it was. It was early. And the Orthodox man responded to him and said, if you want to see the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in his distinct personality from the Father and the Son, go to the Jordan. Go to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. The transfiguration. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make one Uh, Three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I've quoted John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus says in John chapter 14, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Messiah is, is a person. A real, it's not, he's not a force. The, the Messiah, the first thing we're looking at is that Jesus Christ is God. He is fully God and fully man. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Mystery, but it's mystery. We have divine names attributed to him, that he is the Son of God, We have divine worship ascribed to him. God says concerning this Messiah and worship him. Kiss the son, do homage to him. God the Father, again, never says to a creature to break the first, second, third, and fourth commandments and and to commit idolatrous worship. He says of the son and worship him. Read Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 1 specifically, it says that Jesus Christ is infinitely superior to the angel. The book of Hebrews, which a great many of these particular psalms we're looking at are repeated in, you can say the book of Hebrews should be titled this, Christ is better than. And the Jewish believers were tempted to go back under the old system. And the writer to the Hebrews, which I think is Paul mostly, some days I don't, but some days I do, he says essentially Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than the ironical priesthood. Why? Because he's like Melchizedek without beginning, without end. And he talks about the eternality. And so this Messiah, this we, we talked about Jesus as the anointed one. The anointing is the consecration by the Holy Spirit unto an office. Like I've seen many of the brothers commissioned as an officer in the military, here in locally Marines and, and, and Navy. And then I've seen my son commissioned as an army officer. The baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointing, is his official public proclamation, his commissioning into office. And when we think about the the anointing of Jesus Christ, he is our anointed mediator fundamentally. 
And so when we think of this Messiah, he's a person, he's God, but he's that mediator. He has to be God to represent God to man, and he has to be man to represent man back to God. Does that make sense? So that's why people say, well, could, could he be an angel? Couldn't the Messiah be an angel? As I think the Jehovah's Witnesses and both the Mormons, couldn't he be an angel? Could Jesus be an angel and represent fallen man back to God? No, he has to be a real man. Could he be an angel and die on a cross and take the, the, the wrath of God for the sins of man? No, because he would never get off the cross. So when we consider Christ as our Savior, being fully God, which is almost beyond our comprehension, why is it necessary that our, our, our Savior be... Think of what Christ gets him to a jam. He says, pick up your mat and walk, and your sins are forgiven. They say, but who but God can forgive sins? But Jesus Christ is God, and he can forgive sins. And then we think about him as our divine prophet and our divine king and our divine priest, this one that we're to put our trust in. I want you to think about your standing before a holy God. If your Savior, if your Christ, was not divine, he was a creature, how confident would you be that your sins were forgiven? How confident would you be that no one would ever snatch you from his hand? Beloved, there is a place in the psalm that says the whole earth could tumble into the sea. We, we, we are safe in the hands of our Christ. No one will snatch us from our Christ because he's fully God and he's fully man. And when Jesus Christ says, come to me, I'll never cast you out. I know there are people that talk about biblical lies. I know there's the open theism that says God learns and all of these things. Put all of that nonsense aside. The Bible says, God cannot lie. And when Jesus Christ says, come to me, I'll never turn you away. God says that to you. Come to me, and where I am, there you will be also. God says to you. And he'll never lie. And I'll forgive you of all of your sins. He never lies. And our confidence is built upon the God-man. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.